Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, we have the privilege today of hearing a lecture from one of the premier New Testament scholars in uh, the evangelical world. Uh, he is Dr. Don Carson. Don Carson holds a Ph.D. from the University of Cambridge. For a number of years, he's taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. We have the privilege of welcoming him here at Beeson Divinity School to present our Biblical Studies Lectures in 1997. And what we're going to hear today is a talk, a lecture on evangelizing postmoderns. Uh, Don is a person who's done many uh, missions, they're called, on university campuses uh, around the world. And he's particularly sensitive to how to present the gospel in a way that, that doesn't compromise the gospel, but that connects to the world in which we live, to those who are listening. And this is a lecture just on that theme. And notice especially in this lecture how he deals with the Paul's presentation of the gospel on Mars Hill we read about in Acts 17, a wonderful exegetical insight into evangelism, into what we might call today cross-cultural communication of the gospel. So let's listen to our friend Dr. Don Carson, Evangelizing Postmoderns. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. 
Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At this, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So reads the word of God. I hope that it is clear from our discussion of the last day or two that in evangelizing postmoderns we are now involved in a worldview clash. That is to say, we are no longer in the situation where we simply assume that our hearers, unless they are churchy folk, that our hearers share the kind of Judeo-Christian heritage with which we ourselves were brought up. We are dealing now with men and women in most secular universities and in many of the more secular parts of the country, the Pacific Northwest and the New England states, and in many other places in any case, regardless of the particular percentage of evangelicalism in our patch of the country, where the ordinary person uses religious words in a way that we don't use them and does not have any of the Bible storyline as a frame of reference. So that we are now dealing with people who've never heard of Abraham or Moses or Isaiah, do not know that the Bible has two testaments, and the small religious vocabulary that they do have, spirit, God, truth, righteousness, faith, whatever, just doesn't mean in any of its terms what Christians mean when they deploy the same words. I have a friend, he's now getting on a bit, who went to India as a missionary from Canada about 35 years ago. He learned Hindi quite fluently. His task was primarily to teach in a seminary there. He stayed for three or four terms. But during that time, he, he became very interested in evangelism in Indian villages and spent many weekends and all of his holidays um, in evangelism in Hindi in villages. He knew about the dangers of syncretism. He was reasonably well trained and he was thoughtful. But although he kept saying that it was impossible to absorb both Jesus and Krishna, that uh, Jesus uh, claimed certain exclusive prerogatives and rights, and so on. Nevertheless, many people made professions of faith and absorbed Jesus into a larger system. And he left after three or four terms, profoundly discouraged because although he had seen many apparent conversions, he hadn't planted a single church. He thought about the matter a great deal and then returned for one more term before returning to Canada. And in that term, besides his regular teaching assignment, he went to only two villages. 
and he began with Genesis, and the doctrine of God, and creation, and the fall, and so forth. And gradually he taught the Bible's storyline until he came to Jesus. Now that time he saw very few professions of faith, but he planted two churches, one in each village. Now we are at a situation in the West where we can no longer assume that the people we evangelize, apart from those who have some sort of churchy connection with us, have bought into the Judeo-Christian heritage with which we are so familiar. And it is this, this clash, this culture clash that we are involved with. What it always means is that there is some unlearning to do as well as some learning. People need to stop believing in certain things and begin to, believing, to believe in other things. Now, there are also changes of conduct and orientation and other matters, but that is a fundamental difference. When people have bought into a Judeo-Christian worldview in great measure, then your evangelism tends to be focused on pushing some small part of the Bible storyline, the death and resurrection of Jesus, justification by grace through faith, shoving it very hard and demanding that people trust Christ. And, and it fits into everything else they know. If, on the other hand, they have bought into another worldview, and in this case, not only another worldview with different visions of spirituality, but often a postmodern epistemology that I attempted to define yesterday, then, then there is some unlearning to do, some backing away from things that have been absorbed, and a reorientation to another frame of reference. Postmoderns typically love stories, but they distrust big stories, that is, meta-narratives. Just as metaphysics is the kind of physics that underlies all the rest of the physics, so meta-narrative is the big story that explains all the little stories. And the fact of the matter is you can't make sense of Jesus in the Bible unless you absorb the Bible's meta-narrative. That meta-narrative begins with a personal transcendent God who exists apart from any created thing, which excludes pantheism, and he makes things out of his own powerful word, which excludes dualism. Uh, this matter is not intrinsically bad. The essence of the human dilemma, these humans who are made in his image, is not that they are material, but they have rebelled against him, with all that that entails in, t in terms of attracting the curse of God himself. And then history does not go round and round in circles, as most Hindus uh, believed, but goes in a straight line toward a teleological climax, and so on and so forth. There is an entire frame of reference, and the Bible's story about Jesus cannot make sense in the Bible's terms until it is nestled within the Bible's big story, the meta-narrative. So our struggle is now a worldview clash, whether we like it or not. In the second place, this means that our apologetics and our evangelism must focus a little more on where we're going and a little less on how to get there. I am often asked when I address this subject, yes, but how do you start engaging uh, postmoderns? Where do you start? And my answer always is, I'm happy to discuss those matters with you once you see clearly that that is a second order question. The first order question is where you're going. For if you do not see where you're going very clearly, then you will tend to use your question, 
how do you get there? How do you become relevant? How do you engage such people? So to shape your direction that ultimately the gospel becomes trimmed. For example, if there is a sense of alienation or lostness or loss of self-identity in many postmodern perspectives, then it is very easy to present Jesus as the one who gives you a sense of meaning again. But um, if Jesus is merely presented as the one who sort of anchors you or gives you a sense of um, meaning or a sense of uh, identity, precisely how is that presentation of Christ, though it has some element of truth to it, anchored in the Bible storyline? What, what has the cross got to do with it? What has sin or rebellion got to do with it? What has the judgment of God got to do with it? How, how do the, the, the prophetic words from the Old Testament um, uh, prophets fit into this sort of scheme? Do we reinterpret um, the, the text we briefly mentioned yesterday, the abundant life, now to mean the, the life in which there's some kind of self-identity and self-fulfillment? In other words, if you begin by where people find themselves to be, how people understand their own problems, and reshape the gospel to address that, you will always trim the gospel, without exception. Sooner or later, although for heuristic reasons, for personal reasons, you have to begin with where people are, you must take them from where they are to a self-understanding that identifies their problem in biblical categories. For if you do not have biblical categories in the definition of the problem, you certainly can't find biblical categories in the solution of the problem. Charles Colson tells the story in one of his essays of how a journalist approached him with a kind of wager. I'll take you out for a meal, the poshest restaurant in town, my expense, and you spend the whole evening trying to convert me. And I write it up. Well, Colson couldn't resist, so he went out with this chap and had a very enjoyable evening meal and tried all of his evidentialist apologetics and his presuppositional apologetics and uh, all of his testimony and all the rest, and this fellow had been there, seen it, done it, bought the t-shirt. He didn't need any of this kind of material. And moreover, he was postmodern through and through, so he could paradigm out everything that Colson had to say. Well, of course you think that. That's a reflection of the experiences you've been through. Inevitably, you think that, don't you? Toward the end of the dessert, with uh, Colson at this point feeling somewhat uh, frustrated, Colson said, um, have you been to see the Woody Allen film, Crimes and Misdemeanors, which at that point had been out six months or so? Well, yes, he said. I I have seen it. Now, in case you folks are so sanctified that you don't go to Woody Allen films, let me tell you what it's about. In Crimes and Misdemeanors, the protagonist is a doctor who kills his mistress. And then he goes through pangs of guilt and self-recrimination, because uh, after all, he's killed a human being. At the same time, he's afraid of being found out. But then as the film progresses, he discovers that the police don't have a clue. He's safe. There is no connection with him at all. He is going to get away with the perfect crime. So now he's got to decide in himself whether then he will lash himself with paroxysms of guilt for a crime that no one is going to find out he committed, 
or he's just going to view this dead woman as a conveniently arranged batch of atoms that are now um, going about their business independently and uh, inflicts no further wound of guilt upon himself. And he opts for the second choice. And that's the way the film ends. Crimes and misdemeanors. Of course, Woody Allen isn't stupid. He wants his readers, to con his, his viewers, to contrast that with a very famous book by Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist in the last century, Crime and Punishment. In Crime and Punishment, the protagonist sets out to commit the perfect crime. And he knows that the way people get you, the way the police get you, is by checking out every connection that the victim has had with anybody and seeing what conceivable motive they might have or proximity they might have. And thus, if you can find a victim with whom you have no connection, the police don't really have much chance. So he finds an old lady with whom he has no connection whatsoever. And he sets the whole thing up and he bumps her off. He too goes through paroxysms of guilt and almost gives himself away and so on. But in due course, he too finds out that the police don't have a clue. He's scot-free. He doesn't have to worry. But in his case, his guilt is so great that eventually he confesses the crime to the police and is put away. Crime and punishment. Crimes and misdemeanors. Now Colson asked this chap, are those the only two options we have? When we do evil, when we do things that we know are not really right, we either lash ourselves in paroxysms of guilt, or we go away and we deny that there is any guilt, we say it doesn't matter, we deny there's any difference at all between right and wrong. Are those our only choices? The man began to listen. Uh, from there, Colson went on to Tolstoy. Uh, do you remember Pierre and War and Peace? Why is it that the things I do not want to do, I do, and the things I, I, I do not want, uh, the things I do want to do, I do not do? Does this sound vaguely familiar? From there, then, he went to Paul and Pauline anthropology and a vision of human beings in the Bible storyline so that humanity and its significance, individuals and their significance, guilt and its nature with respect to a God to whom we must one day give an account were all laid out. And within that framework, then, he talked about Christ and Christianity. Now, my point is that you may get into such discussions by a hundred, a thousand different routes. That really depends only on your creativity. But where you go is the critical question. Not how you get into the discussion, where you go. You must restore the biblical framework. You must reestablish something of a biblical metaphysic or a biblical meta-narrative for what the Bible says about Jesus even to be coherent. And that means that in evangelism of postmoderns, and virtually all other biblical illiter illiterates, the first and most important rule is you have to start a lot farther back. If you begin with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, this is not a cheap crack at crusade. I could have used almost any of the current systems. But if you begin with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, well, Shirley MacLaine can sign on to that one.
I mean, God's bound to love me. I'm, I'm cute. I'm, I'm lovable. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty nice. And it, we all believe that God has a wonderful plan, don't we? I mean, uh, that's why we read the horoscope, too, to find out what the plan is, or, or, or study crystals, or whatever. What is this wonderful plan for my life? More sex? Uh, more, more money? Uh, more honor? More power? Better education? Uh, what is this wonderful plan? Tell me more. All the categories you see are misleading because the worldview that Bill Bright has when he writes these lines isn't shared by the interlocutors, which means that evangelism in such frameworks demands that we start farther back. Now it is at this point then that I want to draw your attention for a few minutes to Acts 17. Acts 17 verses 16 to 34. First, the realities Paul faces, then the priorities Paul adopts, then the framework that Paul establishes, and then the non-negotiable gospel Paul preaches. First, then, the realities Paul faces. If you follow the Bible's storyline up to this juncture in the book of Acts, you discover that the gospel has stretched out from a narrowly conservative Jewish-Palestinian framework to encompass um, Hellenistic Jews and to encompass Samaritans and to encompass God-fearers and, 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 and so forth. And now we find uh, outright pagans. We've first been introduced to them in Acts 13. Now we have the longest address to them found in Scripture. While Paul was waiting for his friends and colleagues, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now here was a man who, so far as we know, was reaching Athens for the first time, and far from being vastly impressed by the architecture and the like, he looks at things from within a biblical framework and perceives, first of all, the idolatries. He is attempting, in other words, to assess what is going on out of a biblical theological framework, not merely aesthetics. So what does he do? He adopts the course that he has followed everywhere else. He begins in the synagogue. Verse 17. So now he is still evangelizing to biblically literate people, to people who know the Bible's storyline. He reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. That is, people who have been sufficiently attracted to the monotheism of Judaism, that they attend synagogue regularly and begin to know the scriptures, the Old Testament as we refer to it, but have not yet committed themselves to becoming Jews. But in addition, we're told, he spent time in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. In other words, he evangelizes not only the biblically literate, but the biblically illiterate, people who would never have heard of Moses, never read the Old Testament, didn't have a clue what the Bible storyline was, and who inevitably were steeped in one brand or another of first century Greek uh, paganism. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Now, it is important that we understand that philosophy in the first century did not have the overtones that philosophy has today. Uh, for us today, philosophy is a fairly esoteric subject for intellectual eggheads in minor departments of major universities. But in the first century, philosophy had more in common with what we mean today by uh, outlook or worldview or the like. 
and there were various competing worldviews that were in open competition to grasp the, the, the minds and direction of culture. In this case, the ideal of Epicurean philosophy was an undisturbed life, a life of tranquility, untroubled by any undue involvement in human affairs. The gods themselves, in Epicurean thought, were composed of atoms so fine that they sort of live in the spaces between the atoms of, of the material world. As the gods are nicely removed from the hurly-burly of life, so human beings should seek the same ideal. But over against that, Paul presents a god who is actively involved in this world as creator, ruler, judge, and finally self-disclosing savior. We'll come to that in a moment. Stoic philosophy, for its part, thought of God as all-pervasive, more or less in a pantheistic sense. In fact, a great deal of Greek thought could switch back and forth between gods, in the plural, and God, singular, because underlying the gods was often some pervasive notion of pantheism. The human ideal under Stoicism was to live life in line with what is ultimately real, to conduct life in line with this God or this principle of reason which must rule over emotion and passion. Stoicism was characterized by great moral integrity and uh, a high sense of duty. But against this particular vision, uh, Paul preaches a God who, far from being pantheistic, is personal, distinct from the creation, and a final judge. Do, do you see there are huge world issues at stake? Now apparently Paul has been preaching the gospel straightforwardly. We read that what he has been doing, verse 18, has been preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And they can't quite fit in what he's saying to the various heritages with which they are familiar, so they accuse him of being a seed picker. That is, an eclectic thinker who picks up a thought here and a thought there, a little scrap here and a scrap there, and doesn't really have a coherent worldview at all. A second-class mind, you understand. A seed picker. What's this babbler trying to say? But at least he's interesting. And so they bring him to the Areopagus and ask him to declaim a little and explain what he's trying to get across. Now that is the framework in which Paul lives. It's important to understand that there was strong pluralism in Paul's day. This had really come about in no small part by imperial policy. As the Roman Empire expanded and took in new territories, it was always concerned that people might rebel. People tend to rebel in the ancient world when they can align tribe and land and gods. So what the Old Testament superpowers did, the powers of uh, Babylon and before that uh, the, the power of Assyria, it tended to pull the leaders of a conquered people off the land and transport them to some other land. It breaks up this threefold nexus of, of, of tribe, of your people, and the land, and the gods. It's, it's breaking up the nexus, do you see? But it proved extremely costly. It was not very efficient. It broke up society. It reduced the tax base. So eventually, under the Persian Empire, that kind of imperial policy was reversed. What the Romans did, by contrast, was to arrange god swaps. 
When they took over some new territory, they insisted that this territory take on some of the gods in the Roman pantheon, and the Roman pantheon itself took on some of the gods from this new territory. Then if there were ever civil war, it was not entirely clear which side the gods would be on. And this was another way of breaking up the nexus of people and gods and land, you see. It was, in other words, imperial policy to be pluralistic. Now, not for a second am I suggesting that there was a postmodern epistemology operating in ancient Rome. I am saying that the challenges of empirical pluralism have been around in many, many cultures in many places for a long time, not least in the first century. So here he is facing biblical illiteracy, he is facing pluralism, he is facing essentially alien worldviews, different cultures, and now he has to proclaim the gospel. What does he do? Well, it is important to recognize that um, although he... Uh, he, he adopts the priorities of primarily preaching in the first instance to those with a shared heritage, just as many of you preach to people in your heritage and to churchy people who are loosely connected with that heritage. Nevertheless, he presses on to speaking to those who have an entirely alien heritage. Now, at this point, I need to make a small excursus. For there are some people who argue that in these next verses, Paul made a big mistake. They argue that in the next letter that Paul writes, 1 Corinthians, he says in chapters 1 and 2 that when he got to Corinth, the next town down the road from Athens, he resolved to preach Christ and him crucified. And people argue, you see, Paul was really making a mistake in Athens. He tried to go all intellectual on them. He tried to meet them on their own terms instead of just preaching Christ and Christ crucified. And that's why he bombed out so badly. Look at the pathetic results, they say. A few people believe Dionysius and Damaris. That's about it. A few others. If you just get back to preaching the gospel, then you'll be all right. Now, I have to tell you that that is a profoundly mistaken interpretation for eight reasons. But they're quick. Number one, this is not the natural reading of Acts. In other words, even to begin to approach this sort of interpretation, you've got to haul in some material from 1 Corinthians. If you just read the book of Acts right through, there is not a sign in the text here that, that Paul thinks he's making a mistake or that Luke thinks he is making a mistake. It is just part of the progressive expansion of the proclamation of the gospel to Rome. Second. Acts 17 is, in fact, entirely in line with Paul's own theology as outlined in his epistle to the Romans. Had I time, I could show you many, many connections between Paul's sermon here and the opening chapters of Romans. Number three, Acts 17 does not actually say at the end that only a few believe, that's the NIV, but in Greek, simply tines de, certain people, along with others, heteroi. And those are common Lucan expressions to describe what happens when Paul preaches. The NIV is stacking the evidence just a little bit. In the fourth place, apparently, Paul here is cut off. He gets to Jesus and the resurrection, and it doesn't take much of a genius for anybody who's actually read Paul's epistles to figure out where he's going to go from there. 
he's going to go to the cross and the who Jesus is and so forth and so forth. It's not as if he's going to get to the resurrection and quit. He is, in fact, cut off. Number five, this must be set within the context of verse 18 to which I have already drawn your attention. In the marketplace, day by day, Paul has already been preaching the NIV, the good news, that is, the gospel about Jesus and the resurrection. The gospel is a technical term already at this point. It means the gospel as you and I commonly think of it. That is what he has been doing. He's been doing it within a certain framework, as we'll see, but he has been doing it. And in the sixth place, Paul at this point is not a rookie. He's not a first-year graduate out of Beeson or Trinity and, and experimenting just to find out which way it will work. At this point, after all, he has been on the road for something in excess of 20 years, and he has been shipwrecked, he has been whipped, he has been beaten, he has preached the gospel in uh, high circles, in low circles, uh, in Lystra to pagans and so forth. Um, he, he is not merely finding out his, uh, his, his possible path forward. And in any case, in the seventh place, 1 Corinthians 2 does not cast Paul's resolution to preach the gospel over against the background of Athens. 1 Corinthians 2 does not say, because I made a mistake in Athens, therefore when I came to Corinth, I resolved to preach the gospel of Christ. Rather, what it says is, over against you lot in Corinth, who are really impressed with rhetoric, and all kinds of claims of manipulative speech, I, by contrast, resolve to preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block as far as you're concerned, but it's the truth. In other words, this reconstruction of 1 Corinthians 2 doesn't fit 1 Corinthians either. And in any case, in any case, in 2 Corinthians, Paul still sees it as important to bring every thought into obedience to Christ. Are you familiar with the passage in 2 Corinthians 10? We have sometimes individualized that text and therefore rather badly misunderstood it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, Our weapons, the weapons we fight with, are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, in the context, that is not talking about having a clean mind. We take every thought captive. Either you're going to stray off to a bit of greed, and instead you take the thought captive for Christ. Or you're going to stray off to a bit of lust, and then instead you take it captive to Christ. Those might be very important things to do, but it's not what this passage is on about. What this passage means is we take every worldview, we take every philosophy, we take every orientation, and we confront it, and we take it captive to Christ. Do you see? We domesticate it and bring it under the reign of Christ. So Paul is still thinking worldviewishly, even after he's written 1 Corinthians. He's still thinking worldviewishly in 2 Corinthians. And in any case, as we shall see at the end of this chapter, chapter 17, there is a further evidence that, in my view, is virtually irrefutable. But I reserve judgment for a moment. So what do we have here, then? We have a situation in which uh, uh, Paul is uh, confronting pluralism in the first century amongst biblical illiterates, and the priorities he adopts are first to preach to those who share his biblical heritage, and then to preach the whole gospel worldviewishly to these people as well. Then in the third place, what is the framework that Paul sets out to establish? Now, I don't have time to go through this address in detail, but let me draw your attention to certain points. He finds his way in, verses 22 and following, 
by this inscription on an altar to an unknown god. Now, in the ancient world, most of the gods had primary domains. If you were going to take a sea voyage, then you might want to placate Neptune. If you're going to go to war, you want Zeus on your side. If you're going to communicate, you want Mercury, Hermes on your side, and so forth. So there were, the gods had various spheres of operation, of primary responsibility. But there were so many gods, and there were so many spheres. Who knows but that you had stepped on the toes of one of them. Probably this altar, which has not come down to us in archaeology, probably this altar is, is simply covering all the bases in a pluralistic framework and, and, and is offering some sort of a, a sacrifice to any god out there that I may have missed in my prayers, as it were. But Paul sees something deeper at stake. He sees that this is a kind of implicit confession of the unknownness of the whole god situation in Greek thought. And by contrast with that, he says, I'm going to talk to you about the God who is known. I'm going to talk to you about the known God, the God, in fact, who has disclosed himself. And now, without a whole lot of reasoning, he simply sets out the plan. Now, we should recognize that in the ancient world, addresses of this sort did not quit in three minutes, which is about the time it'll take you to read these lines if you read them slowly. Undoubtedly, this was a discourse that went on even longer than mine. And, and, and therefore, each uh, clause here is the equivalent of a point or, or, or a sub-point that Paul expands and so on at some length. But observe then the points that he makes. He establishes God, first of all, as the God of creation. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. That is, he is not a pantheistic deity. Moreover, because he's the Lord of heaven and earth, he cannot be domesticated by religion. He doesn't live in temples made with hands. Not as if he's denying that there's any possibility of God disclosing himself in a temple structure, as in the covenantal structures from Sinai. But he's saying at the end of the day, God is not domesticated by religion. He's not the God who can somehow be uh, placated and won and propitiated and pleased by the kinds of sacrifices we offer. In fact, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. The Puritans like to speak of God as the God of aseity, from Latin Uh, that is, he is the God who is from himself. He, he is not dependent upon us. We sometimes speak of God's self-existence merely in the realm of creation. What the Puritans meant was something more. He, he is so independent of us that, that he is not writhing in, in abject misery because we don't scratch his back. He, he doesn't need us. He's the God of the Old Testament who actually says, if I wanted a hamburger, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. If I were hungry, would I go to you? I, I don't need your offerings. I, I don't need your sacrifices. This whole show is mine. You see, he's the God of aseity. He is independent. In fact, it's the reverse that is true. We are dependent upon him. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. This is the God who is described by Jesus as the one who is so sovereign that not a bird falls from the sky without his sanction. The very hairs of our head are numbered. Every breath that we take in, every breath that we breathe out, that is under God's sanction. He gives us life and breath and, and everything else. There is no limit to his knowledge or power. Then from one man he made every nation of men. In other words, he's not a tribal deity. One of the entailments of genuine monotheism is mission. 
if he is the God of all, he is in some sense to be recognized by all, whether they recognize him or not, and therefore such proclamation must be made. There is not a whiff of racialism here. No, he is one God, and he made from one pair at the beginning every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And then he ruled over them. There is sovereign, sweet, there is, there is a, a definition of their geography and so forth. He is not merely Israel's God, some tribal deity. And this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. That last clause is suggesting that Paul is moving also in the direction of immanence. God is not only transcendent above time and space, but he is immanent, he is everywhere. And this he recognizes that the, 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 the pagans around him did understand, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, we, we live and move and have our being in him. Doubtless they meant it within a pantheistic framework, but Paul takes those words and puts them within his framework. And there is already a hint, too, of human rebellion. All is not right with this world. We are already alienated from him. We need to be restored to him. And God does some of these things so that men would seek him, do you see? And now he moves more firmly into the realm of what sin is, what rebellion is. Since we are God's offspring, made in his image, what you have here is an implicit articulation of the imago dei, our significance before God, made before him, part of the created order, and yet uniquely his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that God himself is, is, is to be um, characterized or characterized by, by uh, gold or silver or stone. He, he, he can't be reduced. There is always a danger of, of suppressing the sheer grandeur of truth and, and making God to look like something in the created order. That's all. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans? We suppress the truth in unrighteousness and then we love the created things more than the creator himself? In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Now, you see, he's introducing notions of redemptive history. History is not simply going round and round and round and round in spheres. There was something that took place in the past, but now something has taken place which changes everything, and this moves toward the future, toward a day when he will judge the world with justice. You're having a whole philosophy of history that is sketched out, a teleological view of history rather than something going around and round in circles, do you see? In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he can commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. By a man, no less. Not even by himself. By a man he has appointed. And he must be some special man. He can't be simply part of this corrupt brood. He is himself God. Who is this man? Well, he is given proof of all of this by raising this man from the dead. Now, do you see what has gone on here? There is an exposition, in fact, of the biblical meta-narrative. There is an outline of the framework in which the gospel of Christ makes sense, and outside of which it simply does not make sense. Which brings us then to the last point in this passage, the non-negotiable gospel Paul preaches. We are all tempted on occasion, are we not, when we are preaching in more hostile audiences, if we're doing the university mission or the like, to trim the bits we know aren't going to be very pleasant. We are all tempted along such lines. Paul wasn't stupid. He had been an evangelist a long time. He had received decent training both in Jerusalem and in Tarsus. The man was learned. He knew that a doctrine of resurrection wasn't going to fly real well in Athens. 
oh, there might have been some who could take it, but for many, many, many intellectuals in the Greco-Roman world, there was enough ontological dualism in the air that uh, matter was often depreciated and spirit was, uh, was magnified. So to speak of resurrection in which somebody comes back in matter is, is almost a contradiction in terms. It's like speaking of a fried ice cube or it just doesn't make any sense. It's an oxymoron. If, if you speak of immortality, that makes sense. So maybe Paul here should simply speak of uh, eternal life. We're all happy with eternal life, aren't we? Or immortality. I mean, that, that's a Christian truth too, isn't it? But Paul doesn't flinch. There are certain non-negotiables to the gospel, and he is himself the one in writing 1 Corinthians 15 who insists that if Christ has not risen from the dead, then the entire Christian structure fails. There is no reality to it. The witnesses who claim to have seen the resurrected Christ are liars. He's very blunt. And your faith, he says, however much psychological good it may do you, your faith, he says, is fruitless. And that means you're damned. Paul is very blunt. So that however contextually sensitive he is in addressing this crowd to, to lock into their worldview and take them out of it into another one, however keen he is to contextualize the gospel in that sense, not once does his contextualization look like trimming the gospel. He has some non-negotiables, and the resurrection of Christ is one of them. And within that framework, then, it is important to see what happens at the end. This brings down major dispute, some sneer. Others say we want to hear you again on this subject. Paul leaves the council. Then we're told, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius and so forth. Now, if you read that line quickly, you may miss the point. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. What is more likely happening is that they were intrigued by how far Paul had got and so they attach themselves to him. They become disciples of Paul. They become followers of Paul. And in consequence, hear a great deal more of the gospel. And in due course, believe. Now, last year, as I mentioned earlier, I did four university missions. And the, the people that I evangelize on university campuses in the Western world are so completely biblically illiterate that inevitably I move a lot farther back and try to explain large structures before I get too close to Christ. The result of all of this is that not infrequently in university missions nowadays, if you have ex-people who seem to make profession of faith during the mission, you will often find 5x or 8x or 10x people who become converts in the weeks and months following. They become sufficiently intrigued at the university mission that they slip into a Christianity Explained course or uh, some, other, some other course that is designed for further Bible study and outlining of the Bible storyline and explaining the gospel and then in consequence believe, do you see? 
So, for example, in just a one-day mission in Oxford, um, just under a year ago, um, there were about 800 students, and about 250 of them, I suppose, were, were, were unbelievers. And at the meeting itself, nobody, nobody made profession of faith. But 16 signed up, in fact, for the course that followed. And six weeks later, the curate of uh, St. Ebbs then wrote me and said, um, Don, I'd like to tell you that 11 have clearly become Christians and we're earnestly praying for the remaining five. That is typical in university missions nowadays. Why? Oh, it's not because when revival comes, you can't have thousands of people swept into the kingdom very quickly. And it, it, it's not because uh, I, I failed abysmally to preach the gospel of Christ any more than Paul did. It's because you're moving people out of an alien framework into another framework in which, to, in which the gospel is preached. There are times when students come to me and they will say, I think I'm ready to become a Christian. And I talk to them for five minutes and tell them, quite frankly, no, they're not. I think I have dominical warrant for that kind of restraint. Read the end of Luke chapter 9. I'll follow you, Master, anywhere you want. Well, our tendency would be to baptize them on Sunday night and get them to give their testimony. Jesus says, wait, wait, wait a minute, the foxes have their holes and the birds of the air have their nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Implication, you've got some cost counting to do. You're not ready yet. Back off. Do you see? And on occasion, that may be the thing to say. In university work, I regularly tell people to back off. They're not ready yet. But the converts you do see are genuine. And they are the ones that reach other university students. And for them, it's a whole life, whole worldview, whole vision thing that finally turns on understanding who they are under the judgment of God, under the love of God, redeemed by the Savior from God. Now that's what's going on here. A few men became followers of Paul and in consequence, believed. In other words, this chapter becomes an exceedingly important paradigm for us as we think through how to evangelize postmoderns and other biblical illiterates in our day. Let me offer some final practical reflections, if I may. First, how you do this is exceedingly diverse, is exceedingly diverse. I have a friend who, at a university mission, you'll forgive me if I use university missions primarily as my examples. Those are things that I engage in most along this line. Another friend of mine at the DICU mission, it's called the Durham Intercollegiate Christian Union, the IBCF in Durham University two or three years ago, in, in seven evening meetings preached through the first eight chapters of Romans. Now, that's not Lloyd-Jones speed. It is possible to preach through the first eight chapters of Romans in eight years. And I, I don't want to start throwing stones at those who do it that way. But these students aren't going to stick around for eight years. And they don't know anything anyway. And they don't bring Bibles to the meetings either. Nor was this held in a church where there are Bibles in the pews. So that every meeting has the text printed out for that evening and a copy laid on each seat. I do that always in university missions because people don't bring Bibles to university missions. Most of them have never read a Bible. And in that framework then, if you stop to think what 
was preached across seven sermons going through Romans 1 to 8. It included a general declaration of the gospel, a doctrine of God, creation, fall. Two and a half whole chapters to explain what's wrong with the world. Religion doesn't work, chapter 2. We're all Jew, Gentile alike, under a curse from God. We go our own way. Then the great atonement chapter, chapter 3, what justification means within that framework. Chapter 4, the faith of Abraham, something then of the, of, of, of the, the Bible storyline, what saving faith means, faith apart from the works of the law, and so on and so on until in chapter 8 you have the Holy Spirit as the down payment of the promised inheritance, looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth and the final adoption of sons. And at each point you have to explain the categories and relate them to where these students are because none of the religious language do they know. And out of that, over the next few weeks, there were many, many, many converted. Many. There were about 350 students a night. About 35 made clear profession of faith within 10 days of the conference. And about a third of them are in the ministry or training for the ministry today. When I do university missions, I often begin with gen parts of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the God who does not wipe out rebels. The next one may be the God who writes his own agreements. It's really Abrahamic covenant. You don't call it Abrahamic covenant, but that's what it is. The next one is the God who legislates, and it's really Sinai, and so forth. Now, in each case, because some people come only to one meeting, you have to find some way of tying that passage through the scripture to Jesus himself. So, the God who does not wipe out rebels, you have to have something about the nature of creation and the fall and who human beings are and so on. What then is the solution to this mess? What we need is a whole new Adam, a whole new human race. And what you're into is new Adam Christology. Although you don't call it that. New Adam Christology is a whole lot of technical stuff that you don't need to, to, to deploy. But that's really what you're teaching. And eventually you move, you see, to the God who becomes a man. The God who declares the guilty just. And so on, until finally the God who is very angry and the God who triumphs. And thus in 8, 10, 12, 15, um, I have as many as 15 in this breakdown, uh, 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 messages, you can, you can deploy the whole Bible storyline to recreate the, the, the vision of reality that is presupposed uh, by the biblical writers, and into which alone the gospel of Christ Jesus makes sense. Now, within that framework, then, there are many things that we can do in the local church, in individual Bible studies, in uh, aggressive evangelistic Bible studies. If you are a pastor, I strongly urge you to find some hostile audiences other than the local church. Uh, that is to say, you must be able still to connect with, with uh, groups that, um, that have no Christian heritage whatsoever uh, in the ministry as in the divinity school. It is possible for professors and pastors alike to spend so much of their time with Christians that somehow they forget how to talk to non-Christians and how to witness, to share their faith, to involve them in Bible studies or whatever. You must find hostile crowds. I don't care whether it's street preaching or some independent group or discussion group in the university or one-on-one -on -one with your neighbor, but you must find something and stretch out in that direction. And then you will discover that the compulsion of the love of Christ finally does teach us how to proceed. This is not something that you learn finally merely in a lecture series like this or out of a book. Finally, you learn it by doing it. The books will help, the models will clarify, 
but finally you learn evangelism by doing it. Let us pray. We confess, Lord God, that sometimes the notion of evangelizing people with frames of reference so different from our own scares us silly. We are ashamed of our fear when your word tells us not to fear the faces of men and women. But we confess our fear just the same. And we ask for grace, Lord God, that we may love men and women more than we may fear them. And like poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there is bread, learn effectively to share the glory of Christ to those around us. Help us to be like Paul, those who read their own culture well, not retreating in some sort of reactionary return to a modernist epistemology, nor succumbing to postmodern epistemology as if it is the be-all and the end-all, but finding our minds shaped by your most holy word. For Jesus' sake. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.